from St. Paul's epistle to the Colossians, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, abounding in thanksgiving. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, We are continuing our sermon series this morning for the next uh, two weeks after today on St. Paul's epistle to the church at Colossus, which is now modern-day Turkey. And um, as I said last week, there are really striking parallels between the, church, the, the struggles facing the church at Colossae and our own struggles today. The details are totally different. We're not worshiping angels and things like that. But the idea of the church that's in a culture, that the culture and the church are radically disconnected, could not be more true than as it is today. Our church, as we all know, finds ourselves increasingly at odds with our own secular culture. I said this last week, an increasingly secular, atheistic culture, and us, we perceive the world from two different planets, frankly. And again, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to check out the sermon from last week. It's on a podcast and um, also on the website, video. The idea being, last week I talked about Paul laying out the groundwork and the framework for a Christian worldview, and how the Christian worldview and atheistic secular worldview are mutually incompatible, and we're right and they're wrong, be blunt. (laughs) Um, But how do we as Christians live in a way that, in a culture that thinks and lives in a way which is radically different from our own? How do we do that? Well, Paul lays it out last week. Know what what you think and why you think it. Know your worldview, that Jesus is the uncaused cause, that he created all things, and in him all things have their being that he created you, and that you matter because God made you in his image. When you take that premise away, the whole house of cards comes falling down. So this, today, Paul moves in, the, moves in this direction of a worldview. Again, it's in the sermon from last week. And now we learn that once we as the church recognize why we think differently than the culture does, how do we stand firm and encourage and stand next to one another. How do we support each other in this culture war? I don't like using that term, but I'll use it for sake of argument. How do we, how do we as Christians support one another in our, in our uh, dealings with the culture, which is so radically different from our own? How do we live lives differently than they do? So we're going to look at that today. How do we live? Not just how do we think, but how do we actually operate in a foreign culture? Uh, Three points from today from Paul. There's a lot more than three points in here, but I'm going to give you three. I'm going to look at a a word of encouragement from Paul and from you. A word of encouragement, how we we stand side by side. A word of encouragement, a word of a walk of confidence, and a life of gratitude. So I'm going to look at a word of encouragement, a walk of confidence as Christians, and then a life of of thankfulness. So first point that Paul says, if we're going to live lives differently, if we're going to live lives that show the world a better way, how do we do it? Point one, a word of encouragement. Paul, I think this is so cool. Paul always, that dude is always making me go, whoa, what? What just happened? Here's what I show you. You When you read Paul's epistle to the Colossians, look, it feels like word salad, right? Doesn't it? I mean, there's like, after a while, there's words kind of coming out, and it's so dense and so compact that it almost, it's almost, 
when you just, if you haven't read it a few times, it just kind of goes over your head. But I want to show you something really cool here. In verse 1, Paul lays out why he writes the epistle in the first place. It's not a theological treatise. It's not an argument. It's not an uh, uh, apologetic for the Christian worldview. It's actually, the entire epistle is supremely pastoral. Check this out. He says here, verse 1, this is a loaded statement. For I, Paul, want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. For, those at, for you and for those at Laodicea, another church, and for those who have not yet seen me face to face. That's the person sitting in your seat right now. That their hearts may be encouraged. Look at this again. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for y'all, second person plural, that your hearts might be encouraged. That's a little weird. Stop there for a second. It's a little strange. Paul wants the Colossians and the Laodiceans and you and I to be encouraged by the fact that he is suffering. What does that even mean? What does it mean? Well, what does it mean to be encouraged? Let's start there, because that's the, the entire purpose of this epistle. What does it mean to be encouraged? Most people think of encouragement as taking time with someone else to tell them that what they did wrong really wasn't that bad. Right? If you've got kids, you know what I mean, right? Most of us think of encouragement as, you know, buck up little camper, you'll do better next time, right? Sorry you failed that test with a flopping, you know, with a 60 on your science test, or okay, mom, sorry you got arrested for shoplifting toilet paper again, but uh, everyone makes mistakes, right? That's what we think of when we think of encouragement. My mother didn't really steal toilet paper. But that's actually not what it means. The Greek word here, to be encouraged, that Paul wants you and I to be encouraged by his suffering is the Greek word parakaleio. And it doesn't mean to comfort and soothe. It's okay, boy. Don't, it's okay, buddy. Don't worry. It doesn't mean that everybody gets a trophy. It doesn't mean that everybody's right. Paul, the word encouragement means to urge them, to challenge you, to give you courage. To encourage someone means to give them courage. Look at what he says here. I want you to know what struggle, what suffering I have for you so that you may be encouraged. I want you to see how I live my life in suffering, and I want you to see me as an example so that you can be encouraged and strengthened by the way I live my life, Paul says. When I was rector of Trinity Church in Red Bank, New Jersey, where I was before I was here, there was a guy there at that parish, his name, his name was Ted Beale. Great guy. Ted was awesome. Ted was a successful, very successful insurance uh, salesman. He owned an insurance company. Uh, Ted loved the Lord, and Ted Beale had a special gift of encouragement. I never really thought about it until I met Ted Beale, but he had a, he had a gift at encouragement, and, and he would point, and the way he would do it, he would encourage me specifically and others by pointing to stories in his own life, successes and failures, mostly failures, and he would use those failures to encourage me when I failed or when I suffered. And he said to me once, once something which has stuck with me, he said, look, he said, what makes a person successful is a person who can suffer and still see the big picture. That's great advice. Suffering, a person, what makes somebody successful, what makes somebody an encourager, is somebody who can suffer and see the big picture and encourage others to do the same. 
Remember last week, Paul said that the main point of chapter 1 is that Jesus is, the, is God, the uncaused cause, the creator of all things. In him, all things move and live and have their being. That he created everything, galaxies and tadpoles and quarks and you. That nothing escapes his attention. He is intimately involved in every area of your life, no matter how small. He says that he knows even the number of hairs on your head. So he is involved, Jesus is intimately involved, the creator of the universe is intimately involved in every aspect of your life, even the parts you maybe don't want him there. And if that's true, and it is according to scripture, then an encourager, you see, is a Christian who knows that and who lives their lives knowing that God is in control. And so therefore you can be encouraged and give courage to others. You can suffer well because you know the big picture that we can suffer without giving up because we know, Paul knows, that God has a plan. You know, you may not know this, I didn't tell you this last week, but Paul is not writing his epistle, you know, on a leather chair with a sherry in one hand and a cigar on the other, right? He's, he's not. That's what I would do. I don't drink sherry, but Paul is not writing from the ivory tower, Paul is not Oprah Winfrey sitting in some condo in New York City writing her most famous book. Paul is writing this epistle from prison. He's in the joint, man. He's in the slammer. And he says, I want you to know that I'm suffering these things for you to be an encouragement, to be an encourager of you. He suffers, Paul does, and he says the only reason he can do it joyfully it's because he knows that God has a plan and that he, Paul, is part of it. And so are you. So let me ask you this question. Do you live a life encouraged, full of courage? And what I mean by that, I feel like, oh, sure, of course I do. Well, what I mean by that is when, when life throws you a, a curveball, do you remember that Jesus is the creator and that you're part of his plan, or do you just complain and whine and post a Facebook page or whatever? I don't know. When you, have something, when you have something which is really causing you to suffer, do you remind yourself intuitively, all right, God's got this. Yeah, this is awful. I'm not minimizing it. But I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to suffer well because I know that God has a plan, and he never takes his hand off the wheel. You know, there are a few things more important than human flourishing than to have someone who can encourage us. We all need it. We live in a fallen and broken world, man. Every single person in this room, including me, we fall prey to our culture. This is the whole point of the Colossians epistle. We fall prey to the culture. Paul says, no, no, no. Be encouraged by me, and you encourage others. Not with platitudes, not with a pat on the back and a little, you know, go get them, big guy. Because you know what? Not everybody gets a trophy. Not everybody does things right all the time. And to tell somebody that they should is cruel and naive and stupid. But to acknowledge that somebody has made a mistake and come alongside them and show them how when you were in that situation, how God strengthened you. That is what an encouraging person does. To remind another Christian that God is in control, that God has a plan, and that you and I are part of it, even when, maybe most importantly when, we suffer. Here's the thing. Our culture has got nothing. 
In our culture, there was no encouragement aside from refrigerator magnet theology and platitudes. Our culture has nothing to offer because in a secular atheistic culture, there is no cause for encouragement. Because in a secular atheistic culture like our own is increasingly moving into, there is no creator, there is no purpose, there is no meaning to life at all. You are nothing but a worthless glob of cells that just happened to accidentally fall into place. Have a nice day. <laughs> That's what the world says. And increasingly, it's becoming more and more obvious. But Paul says, be encouraged in suffering. Be encouraged, Paul says, in my suffering. Because Jesus is Lord. He's got a plan, and you and I are a part of it. And then he says, secondly, don't only be encouraged, I want you to be rooted in Christ. Rooted and grounded in Christ. This is super cool. Um, when I was in grad school, I mentioned this this morning at the 8 o'clock mass, and nobody had an answer for me. Maybe you do. I was watching a movie. I couldn't tell you the name of the movie. It might have been a TV show. I can't remember exactly. But I was kind of in the middle of my own conversion experience. I mean, not at the moment, but sort of over a period of time. And um, the protagonist in the story was wrestling with a, with a question about something in his own life. I can't remember what it was, but it was a big deal. And uh, the protagonist, call him Bob, I don't know what his name was, He's, he's complaining about things going wrong in his life. He's complaining. He's just confused and disheveled and can't figure out which way, which end is up. You've been there, right? We've all been in places where our world gets turned upside down. That's where I was. That's where this guy in the show was. And the guy, one of, one of Bob's friends leans over to him and says, for God's sake, Bill, know your center. I remember that like it was, for God's sake, Bill, know your center. Cardia, your heart. That's what the Bible would say. You know your heart. See, if you don't know, know who you are, actually, I'm going to rephrase that. If you don't know whose you are, you will always be unsteady and unsure. Scripture says like, you're, like, a, like a plumbing in an ocean, kind of bouncing around, right? If you don't know whose you are, you will be unsure, unsteady, unclear about what to do next because you've got no ground upon which to make a decision. But Paul says, therefore, as you received Christ, the Greek word uh, therefore means because. He says, because you have received Christ, walk in him. Like, you know, when you go out, you know, you want to get to know somebody really well, go for a walk with them. Kathy and I, it's too hot now, but when, when it's a little cooler out, we'll go for a walk in the morning sometimes. And what do you do when you walk with somebody? You talk with them, you discuss with them, you, you, know, you kind of suffer together and talk through things. Paul says, yeah, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. See, our culture says that to find who we are, we have to discover our true selves. We have to discover what our real gender might be what our real whatever, fill in, the, fill in the blank, that the whole purpose of life is to discover, discover who you really are, your true self, and then you'll be happy. Nonsense. Scripture says, oh no, the path to true happiness is not who you are, but whose. Not who you are, but whose. That's what makes you authentic and flourishing. Rooted and ground, grounded in Christ. Rooted. Behind my house, uh, my home, we have, a, we have a pond, right? It's actually a retention basin. We call it a pond because it sounds better. Uh, 
it's just, yeah, when they, when they put the houses there, you know, Florida is basically a swamp, and so they dug up the swamp and put houses on it, and then put water goes in the middle so we don't get flooded. But anyway, beside the point, there's a pond there, and behind this pond, which is man-made, there's an oak, a live oak tree. This thing is massive. It's probably 100 and, I don't know, 175 years old. It's this enormous oak that's beside the, beside the side of this pond. And I love this tree. I'm not a big tree guy. I'm not like, you know, the, uh, the Lorax, where I just love trees for their own sake. Uh, but this tree, I, I, I look at it sometimes. I just stand out there and just admire it for its own sake because this tree is this massive thing, and it's always green, and it's always flourishing, and it's always just there. And the reason I love it is because even when the grass is dry or your irrigation system doesn't work for three weeks, for example, uh, that tree is always green. It's always flourishing. And the reason is because you can't see underneath. That tree, I'm sure, has roots that go, you know, they say that the roots of a tree are as deep as the height of the tree. So this thing is huge. This thing goes deep and broad. Those roots are unseen, but they hold that tree steady. That's why it's been there through how many hurricanes. And that root not only holds it steady, but it draws nourishment up into itself, and it flourishes because of what you can't see underneath. That tree is nourished and held fast and immovable because it's rooted. For God's sake, know your center. Are you rooted in Christ? Really rooted. See, people can't see. Remember, you can't see the roots. The people around you that say you're, you know, oh, you're one of those silly Christians, they can't see the roots you have. You can't see the roots, but you know they're there because that's where you draw your strength from. So here's the question. Are you rooted in Christ? And actually the answer as a Christian is yes, you are. Well, how do you know how rooted you are in Christ? Are you like a little sapling with the little sticks that hold it up until it gets its root base going? Or are you a tree, a strong tree? Well, are you easily shaken or are you steady? Are you an encourager of some of other people? Are you rooted in him? See, because you are strong as a Christian, not because you're strong, but because he is. And the longer you live your life as a Christian, you'll see this more and more in your own life and the lives of people around you. You draw strength from an unseen source, and that source's name is Jesus. You are rooted and grounded in him. So how do we live in a secular culture? How do we fight the culture wars? Well, you don't really fight the war with a weapon, except to know who you are, to be an encourager, to be rooted in Christ and live with that source that nobody else can see except for you, that's how you fight this fight. Because our job, the, the other side's job in, with us is annihilation, right? Our job for them is not annihilation, but conversion. They want to destroy us. We want to convert them. Because that is what leads to human flourishing. And so if it's true that we are to be encouraged and encourage that we are to be rooted in Christ, draw from this unseen source, Paul says, live a life of thankfulness. That one verse is so cool. He says, be rooted and grounded in Christ. I paraphrase a little bit. Uh, as you were, live as you were taught. Know your faith and live a life of thankfulness. Like he shifts from sort of like this academic intellectual pursuit to a way of living with a grateful heart. 
Because if you want to change people's lives, let them see that you're grateful. Let them see that you are thankful. He says, be established in the faith, right? Abounding, overflowing with thanksgiving. Overflowing, that people see. There was a famous theologian, uh, a contemporary theologian, who uh, Father Josh knew who it was, a very obscure, um, famous theologian who once said, a happy heart is a thankful heart. You know who that theologian was? Madame Blueberry from the Get VeggieTales. Madame Blueberry from the VeggieTales said, a happy heart is a thankful heart. You could say a thankful heart is a happy heart. You could say it that way. Madame Blueberry was a Pauline scholar, you see. She'd studied Paul in the original Greek, actually. And she realized something important. If you want to really be, if you want to really be joyful and at peace, if you want to be the kind of person that changes the lives of the people around you, which is what we're all called to, if you want to be a force for change in our church, in our culture, in our society, in our families, Paul says, be an encourager, be rooted, and be thankful. Abounding, overflowing with gratitude. And none of this phony baloney Thanksgiving stuff. You know, one of the things I, when I preach on Thanksgiving Day, I preach the same sermon pretty much every year. Not exactly, but something along li- these lines. You know, I love Thanksgiving. You know, you go home, watch some football, spend time with your family. And people will get on TV and say, I am so thankful for whatever. I'm so blessed. Do you ever notice they never actually tell you what, who they're thankful to? Or who they're blessed by? It's sort of this idea in our culture of this impersonal thanksgiving that, you know, this just happened to happen. I'm so thankful, but to nobody in particular, right? That's the way our cultural thinks. I want you to be thankful to Jesus, who is your root. I want you to know who you are thankful to. I want you to be grateful to Jesus Christ, who is God, the creator of all things, who makes all things, who made us, who made you. Because when you see life that way, you realize something, that all life, all of life, is a gift. Everything is a gift. All of life is a gift. The fact that you woke up this morning and the Lord put life in your lungs, breath in your lungs, is a gift. Everything you have in this world is a gift. Paul says, listen, live it. Live like you really believe that abounding in thanksgiving. You want to change the world? Don't start a blog or do culture wars or protest. No, man. Be an encourager, be rooted in Christ, and live a life of thankfulness. Because then people will see that Jesus actually really does change lives for good, and specifically yours. And that the person that you used to be, you no longer are. Because you are now rooted in Christ, bold and fearless and thankful. So friends, if you want to change the world, If you want to change your families, be a thankful person. Be a grateful person. A person who is not ashamed to thank Jesus by name for all his many blessings. Even when you're at lunch with your friends and you say grace, you can use the Jesus word. Be thankful to him by name because he is the source of everything you have. A thankful heart is a happy heart. And friends, that is what changes lives for good. Shall we pray? Father, help us to be encouraged by others and an encourager of other people. 
to live lives of stability and peace and joy rooted in your Son, the source of our strength and our courage, the unseen source of our strength and our courage. Let Jesus shine through us in lives of thanksgiving and praise to the witness and the power of your Spirit working in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.